Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Keeps for continuing to support the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Keeps makes easy and affordable hair loss treatment for men. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash gold. All you have to lose is your hair. There's a lot of people who are going to be very happy to ring out the year 2020. The problem is the year we're about to ring in, 2021, could be a whole lot worse, hopefully not health-wise as far as COVID is concerned, but economically, I think this is where a lot of the chickens are going to come home to roost, not just at the ones that we let out in uh, 2020, but the ones that we have been letting out for the years and years and years that preceded 2020. But first, let's take a look at what happened in some of the financial markets in 2020. I want to start with the dollar because I think actually this is the most significant financial instrument that we want to look at. So the U.S. dollar index was down almost 7% on the year, 6.75%. But the decline is a lot more substantial if you measure it from the peak that the dollar index had in March, April timeframe, it got up to about 103 when COVID first broke out. And there was a lot of bullishness, near universal bullishness. I was one of the few people who was bearish on the dollar. Of course, I've got a lot more company now as it's more obvious uh, where the dollar's headed. But back then, everybody expected the world to rush into the dollar as the port in the storm, the COVID storm, the safe haven uh, from all of the problems. And while there was a reflective knee-jerk movement into the dollar, if you go back and listen to the podcast I was doing at the time, I said that it was a head fake and it would not last. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. The dollar's safe haven status maybe lasted for a month, a little bit more. And then it was gone. And it was a shadow of the type of rally the dollar enjoyed following the 2008 financial crisis. So I thought the fact that it was such a small uh, safe haven bounce was a uh, harbinger of some bad things to come for the dollar. If that was the biggest rally it could muster, given how bad things looked at the time and how Uh, small the rally ultimately ended up being. But the decline that we had for all of 2020 is not that substantial. In fact, the dollar index, which managed a small gain on the last trading day of 2020, finished just below 90. 89 spot 97 is where we are in the dollar index. And of course, the dollar index has been a lot lower than that in the past, So there's nothing particularly scary about an 89 handle on the dollar index. When things are going to start to get scary is when there's a handle below 70. You know, when we crack 70, because we've never seen the dollar index below 70. In fact, 71, I think, is about the low uh, from 2008. And then we almost touched that low again in 2011. But when we take out that double bottom... And we're really in uh, no man's land. 
and the dollar is set for free fall, that's when it's going to get a lot scarier. But I think that that could be another year or two away. So I think for a while, people are going to start to enjoy the dollar's decline because at least it's going to help push up asset prices like stocks. But eventually, people will realize that it's too much of something that never was a good thing and we're going to have a real crisis in the dollar. In fact, one of the things that is going to result from the dollar's decline is going to be China, I believe, is going to end up surpassing the U.S. to become the world's largest economy before the end of the Biden term. And I think that's assuming he's there for one term. I mean, maybe he can survive and get reelected. I don't know. But I think even if he only has one term, four years, I think during those four years, China's GDP could surpass the GDP of the United States if the U.S. dollar has a big enough fall against the Chinese yuan. And to me, there is a decent probability that that is going to happen. Now, I think the estimates are already that China will overtake the U.S. Now, I think the official estimates are maybe 2028. So maybe Biden would have to be reelected for it to happen in his term. But I don't think those estimates are factoring in a precipitous decline in the U.S. dollar relative to the yuan. I think if you make that assumption, then China is going to surpass the United States much sooner than people think. In fact, another result of the dollar that has already weakened is the cost of shipping. You know, I just read a story up on Zero Hedge that the cost now to bring merchandise from Asia to the United States, you know, through the Pacific Ocean, year over year, the shipping costs are now up two times, two to three times, actually. In some cases, costs have tripled to import goods into the United States from Asia. And this is just getting started. And it's not just going to be more expensive to bring the goods in. It's going to be more expensive to buy the goods because as the dollar keeps going down, you need more and more dollars to buy those imported goods. As a matter of fact, yesterday, we got the merchandise trade deficit or the, the goods trade deficit for November. And it came in at a record $84.8 billion. I mean, that is the biggest one-month merchandise trade deficit in the history of the United States. Obviously, these bigger trade deficits put even more downward pressure on the dollar. And of course, as the dollar goes down, that puts more pressure on the trade deficit because now we need more dollars to pay for our imports. Well, as we have to spend more dollars to get our imports, our trade deficit is now bigger because we're spending more dollars on those imports. But of course, having a bigger trade deficit puts more dollars, excess dollars into global circulation. The world does not need those dollars to buy our goods and services, so they unload them, and that puts more selling pressure uh, into the market and pushes the dollar down. It's a self-perpetuating spiral. Of course, Donald Trump, when he ran for president, the way he promised to make America great again was to shrink the trade deficits. Donald Trump was 100% right to point out that the trade deficits were a sign of an economic problem, that the country had been decaying for years, for decades, and that we were no longer great, and that Trump was going to make America great again, specifically by addressing the trade deficit. He was going to turn this situation around. America was losing on trade. We were going to win on trade with Trump. He was going to renegotiate these great trade deals. Uh, he was going to tear up uh, NAFTA and whatever else uh, prior politicians had gotten us into. And he was going to uh, be a great negotiator. And he was going to make America great again by, you know, reindustrializing, by having a manufacturing renaissance. That is the bill of goods that he sold to voters. Of course, as soon as he became president, he forgot all about that because we are losing on trade bigger than we've ever lost before. Trump just said we were going to win so much on trade, we were going to get tired of winning. 
Well, how about getting tired of losing? We've never lost this much. I mean, you want to talk about a reality show. It's not The Apprentice. It's The Biggest Loser. And who's The Biggest Loser? The United States, because we're losing more on trade than ever before. Of course, we win in that this is a massive subsidy that foreigners are bestowing on Americans. We get $84.8 billion worth of actual goods in the month of November, and all our trading partners get is paper that we just printed that cost us nothing. We didn't have to do anything to come up with $84.8 trillion. The Fed just, you know, pushes buttons and there it is, you know. But the goods that we imported, people actually worked hard to make those goods. Uh, capital was used, resources were used. So we won from that respect in that we got real stuff and our trading partners got worthless IOUs, but we're losing in the sense that we are hemorrhaging red ink. And the fact that we have these big deficits proves that we have a lousy economy. Of course, if you look at all the news stories that came out following the release of this horrific record trade deficit, every news story had the same conclusion that we had the big trade deficit because our economy is so much stronger than everybody else's, that we are recovering much quicker from COVID than the rest of the world. And because we're such a strong economy, we're sucking in all these imports, which is pure BS. I mean, first of all, the trade deficit was deteriorating even before COVID. It's not like everything was great and then COVID happened. Things were getting worse and the trends simply continued after COVID. But of course, the whole world has got COVID. I mean, we can't use COVID as an excuse for our trade deficit because other nations have trade surpluses and they also have COVID. But of course, the truth is, if our economy really was recovering faster, we would be producing more. Our factories would be turning out more products. So we wouldn't have to import as many products. We can export some of our products. It's strong economies that make more stuff. The reason that we're sucking in so many imports is because our economy is so much weaker than all the other economies. We can't produce the things that we need. And so we're forced to rely on stronger economies that can produce those things. And so we give them the money that we print to buy the stuff that we can't produce because our economy is too weak. And in fact, these record trade deficits show that not only has our economy never been weaker, but we've never been further from greatness than we are now, right? If Trump ran to make America great again, and he was going to make America great again by getting rid of our trade deficits and having a uh, manufacturing renaissance, well, the opposite happened. So we've never been further from greatness thanks to Trump. Now, of course, he had a lot of help, so it's not all uh, his fault, but he certainly did not keep that promise. But as a result of the weakening U.S. dollar, which is already manifesting itself in these rising uh, shipping costs, look at commodity prices, look at industrial metals, look at agriculture, we are really going to reap uh, the whirlwind of uh, the inflation winds that we have been sowing for years, but particularly, particularly ever since COVID. Now, as weak as the U.S. dollar was against other fiat currencies in 2020, it was even weaker in terms of real money. If you look at what happened to gold and silver prices in 2020, the price of gold was up about 24% and the price of silver was up about 46%, meaning Yes, you need more dollars if you want to buy euros or if you want to buy Swiss francs or Japanese yen or Australian dollars or any of these other fiat currencies. But if you want to buy an ounce of gold or if you want to buy an ounce of silver, well, then you need even more money because all fiat currencies are losing value. It's just that the dollar is losing it even faster than most of the other ones. And that is the trend that is really going to accelerate in 2021. The stock market, though, also had another good year in 2020. Probably very surprising for a lot of people, given where we were uh, in that bear market in March as the COVID sell-off began. Of course, 
had the Fed's cavalry not ridden to the rescue uh, with all their printing presses, it would be a much different story for the stock market. But of course, it would be a much better story for the economy. Not that the economy would have just, you know, boomed had the Fed not done the wrong thing and bailed everybody out. But at least we would have addressed the problem sooner and prevented them from getting worse. Instead, the Fed put a lot more air into a bubble that was already much too big and starting to deflate. And we kicked the can down the road as we made that bubble much bigger. So because of the Fed, the stock market was up. The Dow was only up about 6.5% on the year. I I don't think that counts the dividends, but I think that might just be the price appreciation. Of course, the dividends are pretty meager these days, and these aren't exact numbers. I just took a quick look before I did the podcast. But obviously, if the dollar index was down six and three quarters percent uh, and the Dow was up six and a half percent, if you're a foreign investor, that's basically a push, right? If you live in Europe and you took your euros and you bought the Dow, you don't have any more euros now than you started the year with. You're pretty much flat. So the U.S. was not a good place for foreigners to invest in 2020. Now, that's a very different story than 2019, 2018, 2017. I mean, we went through almost a decade where the best game in town for global investors was investing in U.S. stocks because as good as it was for Americans, it was even better for foreigners who were measuring their U.S. stocks with their own currencies, which were going down during the dollar bull market. Well, all this is going to reverse during the dollar bear market, which is going to be even more ferocious uh, than the uh, than the bull market. And so I think it's going to be a much bigger a headwind for foreigners than it was a tailwind. Now, S&P did a little better, right? S&P was up 15.5%. So even if you factor in the foreign exchange losses, that's still a gain. But I don't think it's anything to get excited about for international investors, especially considering the risks involved. Russell 2000 small cap stocks actually did a little better thanks to a year-end surge. I mean, the Russell ended up up about 18.5%. That index had been lagging for most of the year. Ironically, I think it got a big boost based on the idea that we were going to have the the startup trade, that the stay-at-home trade was coming to an end, the economy was going to start back up, and then everybody started buying these small cap stocks. But, you know, nobody really sold all the stay-at-home stocks. I mean, those bubble stocks really didn't lose anything. Even though people started to play for the reopening, they still continued to place their bets on the stay-at-home stocks. That's why the NASDAQ was the biggest winner of them all. The NASDAQ was up 43%. That's a very, very strong year for the NASDAQ, led higher mainly by the FANG-type names, the most overvalued stocks, companies that don't even make a profit. There were a lot of uh, spectacular IPOs that came out at the end of the year. You know, companies like Airbnb or DoorDash, you know, companies that you would just assume would actually be hurt uh, by COVID because they're, you know, in dining or they're in travel and leisure. But no, investors, you know, just gobble them up. Everybody is looking for risk. The Fed has created a casino-like mentality in the stock market in 2020, and investors are taking all this cheap money and buying everything in sight. But what everybody is ignoring is, of course, the other side of this balance sheet, all of the debt that is being accumulated, not only by the corporations that are buying back their own stock, but by the U.S. government, which is printing money to stimulate all this, Look at the national debt in 2020. The national debt right now, I just looked at the debt clock, and it's $27.55 trillion. And when the year began, it was $22.8 trillion. So the national debt is up four and three quarters trillion dollars so far in 2020. And maybe by the time they really... Uh, get the numbers straight because I have a feeling that maybe there's some more because they just sent out a bunch of stimulus checks, right? The $600 checks are in the mail, supposedly. So maybe the national debt will end up being above, moving up by $5 trillion in 2020. It's very fitting that the last year of the Trump presidency, not only does it have the biggest trade deficits in U.S. history, but we have the single biggest annual budget deficit 
in U.S. history. And of course, you know, on the campaign trail, Donald Trump was very critical of Obama and the big deficits uh, during his presidency. And of course, he one-upped them. I mean, the Trump deficits are much bigger. Trump did in four years what it took Obama eight years to do. And in fact, if you go back and uh, read the articles, the commentaries I wrote as soon as Trump was elected, and you can obviously listen to my uh, podcast, but one of the things I said was that the deficits under Trump would be huge. I was not fooled for a minute by Trump's promises to reduce the deficit or the national debt. I said early on that that was not going to happen. So I not only said that Trump would be a one-termer from the very beginning, and that prediction obviously has most likely turned out to be correct, despite the fact that a lot of Republicans now seem ready to challenge uh, the Electoral College. I doubt that those challenges are going to go anywhere, but we'll see. They're keeping it interesting. But I still think that that uh, one-termer forecast is going to be correct. But more importantly, my forecast that he would run up the debt, that he would not be fiscally responsible, that he would actually sign uh, increases in government spending. He would agree to tax cuts that would even make the deficits worse. And that is exactly what Donald Trump did. In fact, one of the big campaign promises made by Donald Trump was that he was going to drain the swamp. He was going to clean house in Washington. And of course, the swamp is the Washington establishment that is spending all of our money. And, you know, the way you would drain the swamp would be to cut off the spending, right? To stop the flow of money that's feeding the swamp, right? It's this Washington bureaucracy that is, you know, sucking the lifeblood out of the rest of the country. And, and Trump was going to put an end to that. Well, if you look at his record on vetoes, Donald Trump has only vetoed nine bills. And for all the talk about potentially vetoing this emergency stimulus bill with the, you know, the omnibus spending and the COVID relief, just as I said, Donald Trump stayed true to form and he did not veto the bill. He did not make it 10 vetoes. Uh, It stands at nine. And I doubt there's anything else that he's going to veto between now and the time he leaves office next month. So that's his total, nine bills. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, if you want to know when there was a president who vetoed fewer than nine bills, you have to go back to Warren Harding, who was president from 1921 to 1923. But of course, Harding only served two years as president. So that's not really a fair comparison because Trump was president for four years. So you would expect if he was in office twice as long, he would be able to make a lot more vetoes uh, than Harding. So if you want to make an apples to apples comparison, if you want to go back to a president who served at least one full four-year term, but who had fewer vetoes than Donald Trump, you have to go all the way back to Chester A. Arthur, who was president of the United States from 1881 to 1885. That's how far back in history you have to go to find a president that vetoed fewer bills than Trump. Now, how are you going to drain the swamp if you're not vetoing the legislation that the swamp depends on? In fact, every time you rubber stamp a bill that the swamp puts on your desk, you are voting to make the swamp deeper. If Donald Trump really cared about draining the swamp, he would have been vetoing more bills. In fact, he should have set a record for vetoes. I mean, I know that's what I would do if I was president. I wouldn't be looking to set records at how big the trade deficits were and how big the budget deficit was. I would want to be the president to veto the most bills, you know, and prevent them from becoming laws. Because, you know, every time a new law is passed, our freedoms are diminished. 
We don't need any more laws. We already have too many laws, right? What I want to do is sign bills, or I mean, if I was president, I would want to sign bills that eliminate the laws that already exist. I would not want to add additional laws. I, would, I want to prevent that. And of course, I want to veto all the spending. That's the way to force discipline on Congress. Don't sign all these bills. You know, Donald Trump made a big deal in a press conference the other day about some of this pork uh, that he didn't like in the in the omnibus spending bill. Well, that pork has been in every single omnibus spending bill he's signed since taking office. How about vetoing them? If you don't like them, just don't do a press conference for the American people. Whip out that veto pen. That's what it's for. Don't, you know, veto the, the bill or just don't sign it. Pocket veto it. Do something, you know, and then force Congress to cut spending or override your veto. But, you know, if the president had some guts and actually vetoed some stuff, there would be enough Republicans who would side with him to sustain those vetoes. And so nothing would be passed over Trump's veto, in which case, if Trump wanted to, he could have drained the swamp. He had four years to drain it, yet all he did is make it a lot deeper. And now, of course, he's turning over the swamp to Biden, right, who is going to reign over it, and it's going to get deeper than ever and murkier than ever. And, of course, the bubble, right, the bubble economy that Trump is turning over to Biden is a much bigger bubble than the one that Trump inherited from Obama, the bigger problem, though, of course, is now that the Tea Party is dead and that Trump is the new face of the Republican Party, the Republican Party is now the Democratic Party. In fact, I've joked, and it's not really a joke, that the Democrats couldn't have done better than electing Donald Trump. If their goal was to really advance their agenda, then I think having Trump president for four years accomplished that uh, better than anything. And in fact, by turning the Republican Party into the Democratic Party, that helps make a lot of these radical left-wing ideas seem more mainstream because the Republicans are all for big government and big deficits. In fact, I was listening to a lot of these Republicans on television uh, who are coming on talking about the, you know, the COVID relief and the stimulus. They, they want more stimulus. Now, some of them, at least to their credit, don't want the $2,000 checks that President Trump wants. And President Trump is out there using the bully pulpit. Instead of demanding less government, he's demanding more. He wants everybody to get $2,000 checks. He wants the Republicans to set aside what's left of their principles and vote for these $2,000 checks because he's a big spending Democrat, right? He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, but I hear these Republicans, you know, congressmen or senators saying, look, we're in favor of getting money to the people who need it, right? We're in favor of this stimulus and relief. There are American people who need money and we want to make sure they get it, but we don't want to just give money to people who don't need it. And that's what this bill does. We're giving money to everybody regardless of need. And we just want to give the money to the people who need the money. The problem is the minute that the Republicans sign on to that, the minute the Republicans accept the false premise that it's the government's responsibility to support the people and that the government even can support the people because it doesn't even have any of its own resources. But once you've accepted that, you've lost the entire debate because you, you've now joined the Democratic camp that this is what the government's supposed to do, right? Once upon a time, American presidents were able to say that it's not the job of the government to support the people. In fact, the government should never support the people. It's the people who support the government and not the other way around. But when the Republicans just accept this role of government, the battle is lost. You know, nobody is willing to stand up and say that they oppose on principle all the all the stimulus and all the aid. Not only because we don't have the money, because we're broke and we're going into debt for it, but it's not even constitutional. Yes, I understand that there may be individuals who are hurting as a result of COVID. Well, that's unfortunate. I mean, there are a lot of bad things that happen where people are hurting. And maybe if we had a lot less government in the past, if we had a sounder economy and people had savings, they would be able to weather the storm. 
But to the extent that people are suffering, let the local uh, governments deal with that locally. Let the city governments, let the state governments, especially if the reason they're suffering is because the state has ordered the closure of their business. Well, if the state is going to do that, then let the state deal with the consequences. Let the states make true cost-benefit analysis of everything that they do. So if they want to force people out of work, then they better be willing to pay the consequence. They, they have to raise taxes on the local taxpayers, in which case local taxpayers might say, hey, don't shut down these businesses. If you're going to give me a bill uh, for the damage, then we don't want to do it. Just leave them open, right? That's what would happen. But because everybody is passing the buck, uh, then everybody just assumes somebody else is going to pay for it. And as I said, you know, a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, the federal government has to do it because the federal government has the printing press and the states don't. Federal government doesn't have a printing press. It's the Federal Reserve that has a printing press. And the Federal Reserve should not be using its printing press to bail out the federal government, but it is. And eventually, I think the Federal Reserve is going to use that same printing press to bail out the states, right? Because the, the, the Federal Reserve could allow the U.S. government to uh, you know, have to deal with higher interest rates or force them into cutting spending or raising taxes or defaulting, but they're not doing that. They are monetizing the debt. They are choosing to monetize U.S. government debt that they have no uh, legal requirement to monetize. In fact, initially, I've explained on this podcast, initially when the Federal Reserve Act was first passed, they, they were specifically prohibited. They were not allowed to even buy U.S. Treasury debt. That was modified uh, during the First World War. But I think the Federal Reserve is going to make the same mistake for the states. Is the Federal Reserve going to let a state default? Is it going to let a municipality default when it could just buy its bonds? Why not? Just print up some money and buy these bonds. That's what they're going to do. Except the minute they start doing that, you've got a Eurozone problem times 50, or not really 50, however many you know countries are in the European Union, but there's not 50 of them. We got 50 states, and the minute one state sees another state getting bailed out, that's it. Everybody is going to race to the bottom. Nobody's going to want to be fiscally responsible because there's no longer going to be a reward for being responsible. Everybody's going to want to run big deficits because the punishment is no longer going to be there. If the Fed's going to start monetizing states that get in trouble, well, you're, you know, you, any state would be foolish not to run up big debts because after all, I mean, it's, it, it, it's going to pay the cost through inflation of everybody else's debt. So the moral hazard is going to really soar when the Federal Reserve starts monetizing the state and municipal debt the way it's now monetizing U.S. government debt. Keeps makes easy and affordable hair loss treatment for men. Look, losing your hair sucks. I know because I lost a lot of my hair when I was young. I remember I started losing my hair in my 20s and I was very, very concerned. Of course, I had a lot of hair to start, so I had a lot of hair to lose. But at some point along the way, they came up with minoxidil. And so I started using that, and it probably dramatically slowed down my hair loss. The problem was minoxidil was very expensive. It actually, I had a friend of mine who used to ship it into me from Spain. But you can get the exact same minoxidil in keeps. And now you can keep your hair, and you can also keep more of your money. So I continued to use minoxidil on a daily basis to, you know, retain the hair that I've got and slow down uh, what I lose, except now I'm using Keeps instead of what I was using before, and Keeps is a better deal because, again, you can keep your money and your hair. The key is, though, use it early. The minute you see that you're losing your hair, if you want to keep your hair, then start using Keeps because the sooner that you can begin applying it, the more of the hair that you're going to keep and the less of it you're going to lose. So to take action and prevent hair loss today, you can actually get your first month of treatment for free by going to keeps.com slash gold. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash gold and get your first month of treatment for free. You've got nothing to lose but your hair. Now, I got to go back and talk about Bitcoin because I know everybody is going to be thinking, hey, Peter, you talked about gold being up and silver being up, but that's nothing compared to Bitcoin. Yes, the gains in gold and silver are nothing compared to the gains in Bitcoin in 2020. In fact, I mean, obviously going back to the birth of Bitcoin about a decade ago, 
Nothing compares to Bitcoin. But let's just talk about 2020. Uh, the price of Bitcoin was up about four times. I don't know the exact amount that it was up, but you know, looking at the chart, it was approximately a fourfold increase. Bitcoin is at 29,000 approximately uh, as I am recording this podcast. So I think it started the year at around 7,000. I think a little bit above 7,000, but uh, not that much. So it's a huge increase uh, in, in Bitcoin in, in 2020. But first of all, it is completely irrelevant to compare the fourfold increase in the price of Bitcoin to the far more modest 24% rise in the price of gold to claim that Bitcoin is therefore better than gold, that Bitcoin is the new gold. It's the new safe haven. It's the new store of value. (laughs) Bitcoin is not a safe haven and it is no store of value. There is no value to store and it's not safe at all. It is extremely risky. That is why it is up fourfold in 2020. That is not how safe havens act. That is not how stores of values act. They don't move up at the speed at which Bitcoin is rising. Now, I know there are people who are saying, well, Bitcoin is going to eventually be a store of value and a um, safe haven asset, right? Eventually, but it's not now. So if you think that Bitcoin will eventually be something that it is not right now, you are gambling. You are betting on something that happens in the future. It may happen. It may not happen. But while you are betting on something that might happen in the future, you are gambling. So even if the people who think Bitcoin will eventually be a store of value and a safe haven asset, the fact that it is not that now means that it is a very risky asset. And I put the word asset in quotes because I, you know, I, I don't even like saying asset when you talk about Bitcoin. It's just a, a digital token, whatever it is. But yes, it has market value because somebody is willing to buy it. And that's where all of its value comes from. But it's clearly a speculative asset. So comparing it to gold makes no sense. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, if you want to compare gold to something, compare it to dollars, compare it to uh, euros or Swiss francs or other monetary assets that you could hold. And obviously people who held gold throughout uh, 2020 did better than people who hold uh, fiat currencies. But Bitcoin is a whole different animal. If you want to compare Bitcoin to something, compare it to something highly speculative. Like how about Tesla? Right? Tesla was up more than sevenfold in 2020, maybe seven, eight times. So clearly, Tesla did better than Bitcoin, yet Bitcoin never wants to compare itself or the Bitcoin promoters never want to compare Bitcoin to Tesla. They want to keep comparing it to gold. But why? Tesla did much better than Bitcoin. I mean, so if, if gambling is what you want to do, right, you got more action in Tesla. If you want to really just take a chance and just buy something that's overvalued and hope it keeps going up, why not just buy Tesla? I mean, Tesla did better in 2020 than Bitcoin. So why wouldn't it be do better in 2021? If you're going to base everything on how much something has gone up, if you're going to say Bitcoin is better than gold because Bitcoin is up more than gold. Well, Tesla's up more than Bitcoin. So buy that. You know, as a matter of fact, there are a lot of stocks, you know, that were up more than fourfold in 2020. Obviously, you know, a a small minority relative to all the stocks that are out there, but there were speculative stocks that were up more than fourfold. I mean, I own some of them myself. In fact, I own a couple of stocks that were up more than Tesla in 2020. But so what? Those are just parts of an overall portfolio. Obviously, my entire portfolio didn't go up fourfold in 2020 because I was diversified. So I had some things that did really, really well, uh, but most of the portfolio didn't go up nearly that much. So obviously, to the extent that somebody incorporated Bitcoin into a diversified portfolio, even though Bitcoin was up fourfold, who knows how their entire portfolio performed? I mean, people want to give me a lot of crap because I don't own Bitcoin. But again, I own other assets that beat Bitcoin in 2020. So had I bought Bitcoin instead of those assets, then I would have been worse off, 
right? Because I choose to speculate in different assets than Bitcoin. Now, I do own some gold and silver, but I don't consider those to be my speculative investments. I consider that to be my safe haven. That's my store of value. So why would I compare the returns on safe havens and stores of value to the returns on speculative assets? I do own some speculative assets. I just don't think Bitcoin is the best bet to make. I think there's better upside with less downside in other stocks. And several of those other stocks that I own beat Bitcoin in 2020. Now, yes, if you went all in on Bitcoin, if the only thing you own is Bitcoin, then you did better than I did in 2020. But if all you own is Bitcoin, the only reason you did better than me in 2020 is because you got lucky. And if you're going to press your luck, if you continue to hold it, because all that means is that you just concentrated all of your money in one risky bet. Now, I could have put all my money. As I said, I, I, I own a couple of stocks that beat Tesla this year, right? So if I would have put all my money in those stocks, then I would have beat Bitcoin. But of course, I didn't do that because I didn't have the benefit of hindsight. At the time I made those speculative investments, I had no idea that they would have such a good return. Obviously, if I knew for sure, yeah, I would have put all my money into the stocks that went up the most. But I only know that with the benefit of hindsight. And we only know that Bitcoin went up fourfold because we have the benefit of looking back and seeing what happened. But you have to realize that foresight is a lot different. And as Excited as people are about Bitcoin right now, because it was up fourfold in 2020. Just remember how excited you were if you happen to own Bitcoin in 2017. Because if you think going up four times is big, you know, in 2017, Bitcoin was up 14-fold. So more than triple, almost quadruple the return in 2017 that we had in 2020. Now, at the end of 2017, right, New Year's Eve 2017, you couldn't find more optimism, you couldn't find more enthusiasm than in Bitcoin. I mean, I know it because I, I, I know a lot of those guys, <laughs> and they were very, very optimistic. A lot of those guys came rushing to Puerto Rico because they, they thought they were going to make so much money in 2018, they, they didn't want to have to pay any capital gains taxes. So they rushed down here uh, to go to Puerto Rico. But they were very, very optimistic because everybody expected the big gains of 2017 to continue into 2018. Well, what happened in 2018? It was a horrible bear market for Bitcoin. Bitcoin was down by better than 70% in 2018. Now, yes, of course, it's now recovered. It's made a new high, but it had a collapse in 2018 that nobody expected. And what's crazy is that this is not, you know, 50 years ago. This is just a few years ago. You would think there'd be a little bit more caution among the Bitcoin holders who might remember 2018, right? This is only 2020, but they don't because I don't see anything out there uh, where anybody is worried that this could happen again, that history might repeat, that we could have another bear market in 2021 the way we had in 2018. And in fact, it could be worse. It could be a lot worse. We could be down 90%. We could be down 95%. I mean, look at what's already happening now uh, with Ripple and the SEC, which has sent the price of Ripple crashing. I mean, Ripple is down to 22 cents per coin. I mean, it got below 20 cents uh, earlier in the week, but it was over 60 cents earlier in the month. So the prices crashed. A lot of other altcoins have gone down too. That's why uh, Bitcoin now is 70.5% of all the cryptocurrencies. Its market dominance uh, is moving higher. And in fact, the only reason that it's not even higher is Ethereum has also moved up. People are kind of taking uh, a shelter in Bitcoin and Ether because they're worried about these other coins. And they're right to be worried about those other coins, but they should also be worried about Bitcoin and Ether. They're wrong if they think they're safe in those cryptocurrencies. There's no safety in any of them. And the reason the SEC is going after uh, Ripple, as I said in my last podcast, is because they are claiming that Ripple is a security. Well, I raised the question that they may make the same accusation about Bitcoin, about Ether. And everybody is convinced that that'll never happen. Why? 
Yes, the CFTC, the Commodities Commission, right, they came out and said, we think it's a commodity. Well, of course, because they only can regulate commodities. The CFTC can't regulate securities. They're allowed to regulate commodities. So the CFTC came out and said, hey, Bitcoin and Ether, they're commodities. We're going to regulate them. All right, well, the SEC, you know, they, they, they may decide that they're securities just because they hadn't decided it yet. Look, they hadn't decided it about Ripple. How many years was Ripple out there? And the SEC didn't say it was a security. They didn't say it was a security until just now. But meanwhile, it's been out there for years and years and it wasn't a security. So the exact same thing can happen to Bitcoin and to Ether. Now, do I agree? Do I think they're securities? Personally, I don't think they are, but I can see a powerful argument that the SEC could make that they are. And of course, The courts are rigged. I mean, you're fighting the government in their own rigged courts. So to think that you're going to get a fair trial. Look, I I think my dad was right. I think a lot of his arguments against the income tax were right. The problem was he had no chance in in a U.S. court, right? It was was more of a star chamber than a legitimate court. Look, this is something that doesn't make any sense to me at all. The people that are in Bitcoin, right? The people that are really out there promoting and touting Bitcoin and believe in Bitcoin, they actually think that Bitcoin is going to completely upend the monetary system, that it's going to supplant the dollar. It's going to become the main reserve asset, that it's going to be the main currency. And of course, the US dollar has the most to lose because right now the dollar is the reserve currency. And if the dollar is going to be replaced by Bitcoin, if the whole world is going to start using Bitcoin instead of dollars, then that's going to put the US government out of business. That's going to put the Federal Reserve out of business, right? If we just can't print money anymore, if we're if the US government is going to need Bitcoin for you know, every time it needs to spend money, it needs Bitcoin. If it needs to pay the soldiers in Bitcoin, if it needs to start paying benefits in Bitcoin or whatever people are dreaming about, and then it has to live, you know, within its means again because it, it just can't create Bitcoin out of thin air. It's gonna have to earn them somehow, right? So there's gonna be some kind of fiscal discipline if we were on a Bitcoin standard rather than just this current fiat standard. Why are people in, in Bitcoin so complacent? and think that they're basically declaring war on the U.S. government and threatening the very source of its power and then thinking the U.S. government is going to surrender without a fight. Why wouldn't the U.S. government, if the U.S. government actually believed all this nonsense about how Bitcoin was going to take over the world and replace all the fiat currencies and replace gold, if the U.S. government actually believed it, wouldn't they try to stop it? Wouldn't they want to prevent it? Of course they would. Now, the only reason they may have left it alone is because they don't believe it. They think it's just a bubble that's going to die of natural causes. So why bother killing it? But if they think it's going to survive long enough to do real damage, well, then they're going to preemptively try to drive a stake into its heart. And that's what's going to happen. And, you know, even though Donald Trump said a lot of negative things about Bitcoin, and he did, and even though uh, Mnuchin, his secretary of the treasury, said a lot of negative things about Bitcoin, there wasn't a lot of interest in the Trump administration about going after it because, you know, that's that's part of Trump's base. Hard money, free market, you know, a lot of Bitcoin people also like Trump. And Trump wanted to be seen as somebody who's kind of hands off, not a big regulator. And so he didn't want to come in and bring the hammer down on the crypto industry. Biden is not going to have the same type of thoughts. And if you look at some of the things that Yellen has said about Bitcoin in the past, she's no fan of Bitcoin either. And I don't think there's any part of Biden's base that is big into crypto, big into Bitcoin. I mean, all of the crypto rhetoric, everything that surrounds uh, Bitcoin is more libertarian, free market. There's not a lot of socialists in the crypto movement. And so it doesn't make any sense that the Biden administration would want to have a hands-off approach, especially if they think crypto represents a real threat to the welfare state and to their Washington power base and the Federal Reserve, they're going to want to nip this thing in the bud. So with all of this regulatory risk out there and the memories of 2018 so fresh in everybody's minds, it's amazing that there's not more fear out there, that all there is is greed in the crypto space. And that should be very concerning to anybody who's in crypto. 
how little concern there is. Everybody is euphoric as ever, as if 2018 never happened, and as if none of these regulatory threats are out there. And by the way, it's not just uh, currencies like Bitcoin and Ether that are likely to come under attack. It's these stable coins. They're already building uh, some you know, legislative momentum. I think the obvious, the big one to go after is Tether, uh, and they can easily declare Tether as a security because what is Tether? It's a securitized dollars, right? You take your dollars and you give them to Tether, and then they give you a cryptocurrency that is backed by that Tether. It's not a bank account. They're going to easily argue that that Tether is a securitized dollar. You give them a dollar bill, they take uh, custody of that dollar, and in exchange, they issue you this brand new unit that you can now negotiate, right? Once you have that tether, uh, you don't have to redeem it to get your dollars back. You can trade it. You can trade it for other cryptos, right? And so you could use it. You're trading it like a stock, right? You're, you know, you're exchanging it uh, for other cryptos. So they can claim that's a, a security. And of course, by calling all these cryptocurrencies crypto securities, they dramatically increase the cost of transaction in them, which substantially diminishes any appeal that they currently have. Oh, and by the way, in a bit of uh, a Bitcoin irony, I was reading an article, I tweeted about it, but one of these uh, Bitcoin publications came out with their list of the top Bitcoin influencers. And I think there were eight people on the list. I didn't win. The fact that I even made the list was surprising, but I came in second. I mean, Anthony Pompliano was the only one who beat me. He was number one, but I was the number two, the second most influential person in crypto. And of course, made no sense to me. I don't think I have any influence at all because if I had any influence, it wouldn't be $29,000 a coin because all I do is talk about how it's worthless and how it's eventually going to collapse. The fact that the price keeps going up proves that I have absolutely no influence at all on the price of Bitcoin unless you are of the belief that it's my negative talk that's driving the rally. That every time I say something negative about Bitcoin, every time I tweet something negative about Bitcoin, people run out and buy it. Now, I, I don't think I actually have anything to do with the price going up. I think it's going up, you know, having nothing to do with me. Now, I believe that if I came out in favor of Bitcoin, if I came out and started to say that, hey, these guys are right, Bitcoin is the new gold. I'm buying Bitcoin. I think everybody should buy Bitcoin. I think that would be influential on the price. I think that if I added my bullish voice to this bullish choir, I think the price would be even higher. So I think I could have an influence on the crypto market if I was bullish, but I don't think I have any influence at all by being bearish other than maybe slowing down uh, the increase, but it's already pretty spectacular even without me. So I can only imagine how much more this thing would be going up if I started touting it too. But I think the reason they're claiming that I'm influential is because my tweets, when I tweet about Bitcoin, it generates a lot of action. There's a lot of interaction. A lot of people are commenting on my tweets. Of course, they just want to attack me, right? <laughs> Um, they, uh, you know, they want to argue with me and they share my tweets. And so people in the Bitcoin community, you know, follow me now on Twitter. And every time I tweet something negative about Bitcoin, they're there to quickly counter it with something positive, which again is what happens when you're, you know, in a Ponzi scheme or rather a pyramid or whatever you Bitcoin needs new buyers. More people have to be recruited into the cult because the pie has to keep growing. More people have to buy in order for the price not to drop. So once you buy Bitcoin, you have to keep convincing other people to buy it too, which is so ironic because a lot of people who are pro-Bitcoin, they attack me all the time for being biased. They say, oh, Peter, you're biased because you got shift gold, right? Yes, I have shift gold and I want people to buy gold. I also want people uh, to invest in a lot of other things because I manage money for a living. I, and Gold sales are just a small part of my business. Most of my income is derived from managing portfolios of stocks, not gold, stocks. But I think people should own gold, uh, but I don't think they should have all their money in gold. I think they should have money invested in income producing assets uh, like foreign stocks. And that's what I specialize in is managing portfolios of foreign stocks. 
But the Bitcoin people say, hey, because you have a gold company, you're just biased against Bitcoin because you think Bitcoin is a threat to gold. And that's why you're negative on Bitcoin. It's not because you've actually thought about it, but because you have this bias as a result of your gold business. Well, the irony of it is it's the Bitcoin owners, the hodlers who are biased. See, once you own Bitcoin, obviously, because you own it, you must think it's a good idea. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy it. But regardless of whether or not you believe in it, what you have to do once you own it is make sure other people buy it. So you are automatically biased in favor of trying to recruit more people into the ecosystem because that's the only way the price is going to go up. And that's the only way you're going to make money is if more people come in because there's nothing you can actually do with your Bitcoin. It doesn't have any real value in the world. You can't do anything with it. All you can do is sell it to somebody else, but you're only going to sell it to somebody else if there's somebody else to buy it, which means somebody else has to think the price is going to be higher in the future than it is today. And so you constantly have to recruit new people. So that's where the bias is. Anytime somebody who owns Bitcoin tells you how great it is, they're biased. The question is how many people out there don't own any Bitcoin at all and have never bought any Bitcoin yet are still objectively saying that it's, you know, it's great and you should be buying it because those would be the unbiased sources, right? And I think I am in in a way unbiased in that respect uh, because I think I'm seeing clearly, I don't see Bitcoin as a threat to my gold business. In fact, we had a record year. 2020 was the best year shift gold has ever had. And the price of Bitcoin went up, you know, to, to 29,000. So obviously Bitcoin going up didn't slow down my gold business, you know. And if I thought Bitcoin was the new gold, well, then I would tell people to buy Bitcoin instead of gold and be fine with it. You know, or I would tell people to buy both, right? There are some people that have gold companies that recommend gold and Bitcoin. I just don't see the value in Bitcoin. That doesn't mean Bitcoin can't go up. Of course it can go up. I mean, it's at 29,000. You know, I mean, it it can go to any price because it has no real value. So one price makes as much sense as another. But I'd rather gamble on other risky investments. And some of those risky investments that I bought paid off bigger than Bitcoin in 2020. And I expect that they'll pay off bigger in 2021 or 2022. So I'm going to keep my chips where I have them. Other people may want to keep them on Bitcoin. I just think that's a bad place to be because at the end of the day, the house is going to win and you're going to lose all your money. You know, one of the uh, newest parts of this uh, this scam, I think, on Bitcoin is I've noticed that it's starting to actually sound a lot like the emperor's new clothes, that fable. Because if you remember, the story of the emperor's new clothes was that in order to see these non-existent clothes, you had to be really smart. You had to be very intelligent to see the clothes. And so even though the emperor was naked, people in the kingdom were embarrassed to admit that they couldn't see the clothes because that would be an admission that they're not intelligent. They weren't smart enough to see this fabric that was only visible to their very intelligent. So people just pretended that they saw uh, the the garment so that others would think that they were smart until the one little boy admits that he can't see it. And then, you know, the the whole charade falls apart. Well, I'm seeing a lot of that when it comes to Bitcoin. I'm seeing people talk about the people who get Bitcoin are just really smart and that there's a learning curve and everybody eventually comes around depending on how smart they are. So the really, really smart people figure out Bitcoin very quickly and then they go all in. But other people take longer. Other smart people take longer to figure it out. But all smart people will eventually buy Bitcoin. They'll eventually figure it out at their own pace. It's just the morons, the idiots like me, right, who don't buy Bitcoin because we're too dumb to understand it, right? So now it's like a mark of intelligence. If you get Bitcoin, then you're smart. And even if you don't get Bitcoin, you can pretend to get Bitcoin and then everybody will think you're smart. So this is now, you know, part of the whole promotion of Bitcoin is this idea that it's the smart people who understand it and it's the fools who don't. It's interesting, but Trump actually has something in common with Bitcoin. See, Trump enjoys the support of a lot of conservatives. And that's despite the fact that he's not conservative at all. 
I mean, conservatives are supposed to want small government. So they want government to cut spending and they are also fiscally conservative. They don't like deficits. So to the extent that government is spending money, they should have the tax revenue to support it so that we're not running debts. Also, conservatives have been traditionally in favor of free trade. And Donald Trump is none of these things. I mean, Donald Trump has signed on to the biggest increases in government spending in our history. I mean, Donald Trump is out there demanding more government spending, bigger deficits, and he wants the Federal Reserve to monetize all the debt to make it possible. Because that's another thing that conservatives typically like is sound money. They want hard money. But Trump is the opposite of that. He wants easy money, as easy as possible. He has criticized the Fed for being too tight. He thinks zero is too high. He wants negative interest rates. He wants massive quantitative easing. So you got a president that wants big government, big deficits, and wants the Federal Reserve to print all the money to make it possible. Absolutely nothing conservative about that. Yet Trump enjoys strong support Uh, among conservatives who think he's their champion. Well, the reason I say he has that in common with Bitcoin or something in common with Bitcoin is because there are a number of people in the hard money camp, right? People who had been traditional gold bugs, to use that word, but who want sound money, who don't like fiat money. They, They like Bitcoin. They're putting their trust in Bitcoin, despite the fact that Bitcoin has far more in common with fiat currencies that they don't like than gold that they do like. Anyway, I want to finish off the podcast, though, mentioning some of my social media sites. You know, I really did pick up a lot of followers on my various platforms in 2020. And so hopefully all of this momentum will continue in 2021. The biggest uh, social media platform being my YouTube channel now has over 405,000 subscribers. Uh, Shift Clips, the one I just started, still only 5,200. I thought the video I just put up of me reading my son Preston's Christmas list, I thought by releasing that video on Shift Clips, I would get a lot more people subscribing. I did it. And so I ended up copying the video because I really liked it and I wanted people to see it. And I realized that not that many people were seeing it on Shift Clips. So I put it up on my main YouTube channel. Of course, it got way more views. So if you haven't watched that video, check it out. But if you haven't subscribed to Shift Clips, subscribe to that YouTube channel because I want to be able to put out a content exclusive to that channel, but I want people to see it. So I got to have people subscribing to it to get the notification that the new videos are out. So make it a New Year's resolution for you to subscribe to Shift Clips. My next, I think, uh, biggest uh, platform was Twitter. I now have almost 320,000 Twitter followers. So I'm really starting to pick up my pace on Twitter. I'm using that platform a lot more. Still don't have a blue check mark. I still haven't been verified uh, by Twitter. I'm wondering if I can actually get to a million followers without having a check mark. We'll see. Uh, But if you're not following me on Twitter, follow me and tell your friends. And apparently that is where my Bitcoin influence is coming from. It's coming from my Twitter account. Uh, So, you know, at least somebody is paying attention to my tweets. I just wish that people actually were paying more attention to them instead of just criticizing them. Then I got Facebook. Facebook, you know, I've been on Facebook for a long time. I'm not using that platform as much. Maybe I'll try to pick it up. I only have 135,000 followers on Facebook. So, you know, if you're not a friend of mine on Facebook, you might want to uh, add me to that and help me beef up those followers. The newest one is Instagram. I didn't even have an Instagram account when the year began. I introduced it maybe midway into the year. And I've got almost 65,000 people now that are following me on Instagram. We are putting out a lot of content on Instagram, a lot of stuff, a lot of really, really good stuff on Instagram. So my goal is really to make that a more meaningful vehicle for me. So if you're not uh, following me on Instagram, and obviously a lot of people are not because it's only 65,000, then follow me, you know, make that a New Year's resolution as well. Follow Peter Schiff on Instagram and then try to get as many other people to follow me on Instagram as well. Anyway, that's it for today. Um, 
I want to wish everybody again a very, very happy and healthy new year in 2021. It's been a long 2020, a lot of content. I've done a lot of podcasts this year, probably going to do as many, maybe even more in 2021. I think it's going to actually be a very, very big year for my investment strategy. I think it's going to be a very bad year for the dollar, uh, which means it's going to be a very good year for foreign stocks, emerging markets, gold, everything that I've been positioning myself and my clients for for the past decade, I think we're really going to get paid in a big way in 2021. And 2021 is not going to be the end of this. This is really just the beginning. This trade is going to be going on for the remainder of the decade. We're still early in this. And so if you haven't fully adopted the strategy yet, there's plenty of time to do it, but don't wait. Uh, don't press your luck. So early in the new year, that's the real resolution that everybody needs to make. Open up an account at Europe Pacific Capital, Europe Pacific Asset Management. Uh, get some money out of the U.S. dollar and let you know let me manage money for you in foreign stocks. Get into my mutual funds if you don't quite have enough money to have a separately managed account. If you don't have any gold or silver, get yourself some gold and silver at at Shift Gold uh, and prepare. And of course. If you have any Bitcoin, if you've uh, been smart enough, I guess, or lucky enough to have ignored all of my warnings about Bitcoin and you bought it anyway, make sure you sell. You don't have to sell it all. Just sell something, right? Uh, Bears make money. Bulls make money. Pigs get slaughtered. Don't be a pig. And again, I've been giving the same advice the whole time. I've always said that Bitcoin can go up. It's just going to go up until it crashes. And, you know, it always makes me think of the... Uh, line from the Clint Eastwood movie, do you feel lucky, right? Well, you know, do you really want to press your luck and and and, and just uh, be all in? You got to sell on the way up. You got to take some chips off the table because you are in a casino. And unless you want to leave the casino broke with the house having all your money, you got to take some money off the table and put it in your pocket and don't leave it at risks. So when you leave that casino, you leave with some of their money. And that's what's going to happen to Bitcoin. It is a zero-sum game. In fact, it's a negative-sum game. Some people win only what other people lose. So if you want to be a winner, you have to sell. When this bubble pops and the market comes crashing down, the only people who will have made money will be the people who sold.